Open your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of Esther as we are starting a a new series this morning. And uh, Esther is right after Nehemiah in our Bible and uh, just before Job, if I'm thinking correctly. Yes. So just before Job and right after Nehemiah. So if you find the book of Job or Job, depending on your pronunciation, go one book back and there you'll find the small but really interesting, in my opinion, book of Esther. Um, I do want to say this before we get into uh, this series. Uh, I just want to say a thank you to any of those that uh, yesterday uh, came out and bought lunch from our student ministry, which was selling lunch yesterday, uh, popcorn, uh, cookies. I think there was brownies. I'm pretty sure the brownies were gone in like no time at all from what I heard, um, which I was kind of disappointed about. I thought, you know, being the pastor, maybe I would get little backroom deal, little brownie on the side. But no, apparently there's no pull. Um, it's just like you pay or you don't eat a brownie. That's how this works. Um, so, but I do want to say thank you to those that were, while you were here, or maybe you came out and you donated something to them. Um, it was just so cool to see people supporting them. And, and let me just throw this out here. If you weren't able to be here yesterday and you would like to make, I mean, you would have bought $5 worth of food you might as well either Zach Webb or Pastor Greg and just, here, I was going to be here, and if I was here, I would have bought this much worth of food. So that way they can help them out that way too. If you want to, I'm not saying you have to, but we're just going to throw that there as an idea. So, and maybe that little plug next year will get me a brownie. Maybe that's how we can work this out. So, no, Zach's going, no way, man, no way. We are really excited, though. I know I'm really excited to dive into this study over the next couple of weeks. Um, and uh, I know, and you guys know me well enough to know, when I say this is going to be a four-week study, some of you instantly, see, there's already laughter. Um, some of you know four weeks can easily become six. And if you're going to do a six-week study, you might as well do a eight-week study. I mean, why stop at six? That's such a weird sermon series number. You might as well go to eight. So, um, but right now the plan is this will be a four-week series uh, diving into this really interesting book and looking at some things that we find what God would have for us. Uh, For some of you, and some of you maybe here today or watching online, maybe you've never read the book of Esther. Maybe it's something you've never even read through. You've heard maybe a little bit about it, but you've never really read it. For others, maybe you've read it, but you've never really studied it. For some, maybe you've actually done Bible studies on this book, and you seem to have or feel like you have a pretty good grasp on the content we find therein. But either way, I pray that my overarching purpose, one of the main things I hope that will happen as we study through this book, is that all of us collectively as a church will deepen our trust in God. I think that's, if you can kind of say, you know, if there's one main, and I'm going to give you some more reasons why we wanted to do this study, or why I felt like God was leading us to do this study, but the one main kind of point or thesis point or main statement is, I want this study to deepen as a church, our trust in God. And that's kind of the subtitle of this. It's not only just a study through Esther, but it's a story of God's hidden presence. A story of when God's present, but we don't seem to think he's present. And we need to learn to trust him even when we don't see his hand or sense that he's with us. Before we dive into the text, which we're just going to read the first few verses here in chapter 1 in just a moment, 
But before we dive into the text, I want to give you a little backstory to set up where this story takes place. The book of Esther takes place, obviously, in a different culture and timeline than we find ourselves today. And so this story is taking place in Susa, or the Bible is going to say Sushan, or Sushan, however you want to say that. And what that's going to be is modern-day Iran. So this story is taking place in a location which we would call modern-day Iran. The timeline that this story is taking place is believed to be following the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity, which Ezra and Nehemiah actually cover that. Ezra talks about the return of the people in a sense of the religious sense. Nehemiah famously talks about coming back and rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the the city of Jerusalem. The, The people work together to do this. And so Ezra and Nehemiah kind of established this idea of the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity. However, following that return that was allowed to take place, some of the Jews remained in the Persian Empire. Some of them remained in the Persian Empire. They stayed back. They didn't necessarily go back to Israel or to Jerusalem. And this book deals with those Jews and a plot that was unfolding to actually destroy the Jews in the Persian Empire, those that remained outside of Israel, those that stayed and did not return. And so it's an amazing story. It's a story that takes place in history. So I believe the story really did take place. I don't think it's just a fictional story. I really do believe there was a real life Esther and a real life Mordecai. And I believe this story actually took place. And so as we dive into this book, we're going to see what unfolds in the lives of these Jews, but also in the world around them. So just to see a sample of what's going on, I want to open up with just Esther chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going to read just the first few verses, the first nine. It says this in Esther 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Azuerus, some of your modern translations might say Xerxes with an X. The reason for that is some have suggested that Azuerus is more of the Hebrew understanding of this name, but the Greek name would have been Xerxes. So there is some debate on this, what name is best given in the Greek to this person. But in any case, this is the king that's being spoken of here. And so if your Bible says Xerxes, it's believed modern commentators would say this is the same person, just a different rendering of his name. So it came to pass in the days of Azuerus, this is Azuerus, which reigned from India, even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 providences. So this is a large ruling reign. This is someone with a lot of authority. That in those days, when the king, when the king Azuerus, sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in uh, Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign... He made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, I'm sorry, yeah, Media, and the nobles, the princes, and the providences being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellence, majesty, many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where uh, were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and of silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave him drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, 
according to the state of the king, and the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Asuerus. I'm going to ask that we would pray. And we're going to ask God to give us wisdom this morning as we dive into an overview of this book and talk about some of the things we see in the culture and in the story that I directly, or I think directly applies to our lives today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the reading of your word. And we pray that as we dive into this study over the next four weeks, that you'd open up our hearts and minds. And Lord, that at a greater level, and it's something that happens every single day, moment by moment, that we would trust you more that our deepening of our trust for you would take place in a way that is truly supernatural, that, that humanly speaking, we would be confusing to those around us when we trust in the midst of storm, when we trust in the midst of chaos or suffering or pain, but that there's still this, this rock-solid trust, this holding tightly to the truth of who you are in your character. And so, Father, as we dive into this amazing story the story of this individual, this woman named Esther, and all the things that unfold around her life and the lives of those that she impacted, but also, Lord, and I pray we'll understand that you impacted through her, that we would see how we can apply these truths to our lives today, that we'd be changed by the understanding and the application of your word so that we could go forth making disciples and making you known and that your glory would be on display. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you read through these nine verses, there's a couple of things that should stand out pretty quickly to us. The first thing that should be really evident is the power of this king. I mean, we're told right at the onset, he is a ruling king. He has a massive kingdom. He has a massive palace, tons of parties and celebration. It goes on for just a hundred and some days. It's just crazy, all the celebration. And what is the point of all this? To celebrate him as a ruler, to celebrate his reign, to celebrate all his possessions, all his stuff. And when you read the listing of all the materials that go into play here, it's obvious that it's all about him. It's all about his reign, his control, his dominance over his kingdom. Something interesting to note is in verse 9, when it says the queen Vashti made a feast for the women in the royal house, there's this phrase added on at the end, which again is there to remind us that if you think she has any real power, don't be fooled. The last phrase of verse 9 is to remind us who really has the power, which belonged to King Azuerus. So even the queen, and she's throwing this feast, and she's having a celebration, but even her supposed authority and power is really kind of submitted to and placed under the greatness of the king. I believe Esther opens up this way with great intention from God, that we are supposed to see that, humanly speaking, this king is it. He's all about himself. He's got all the power. He's got all the authority. But I believe that we're going to see as we go through this study that we're going to be reminded that God is truly the one that is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That all of this we read about this great king and his great power, we're going to see that God works not only through him, but even over his reign and his rule. If you study church history, or especially the history of the Old Testament, you're going to find out that God is always at work in ways we never understand. God is always working in the details and things in our lives for years down the road. I've said it before, but God is working right now and orchestrating things together right now for a prayer request that you haven't even thought of praying yet. 
That years from now, you're going to pray for something that God is going to lay on your heart. And he started working on that today to prep and prepare so that when you pray that prayer request, he's going to say yes to that. And he's already orchestrated all the situations together that that prayer request will be answered with a yes and be affirmed. I mean, that's our God. That's the greatness of our king. And so when we read Esther 1, we're kind of reminded of our culture today. In our world today, it's all about speaking human culture. It's all about building up our kingdom. It's all about building up ourselves and our stuff. Man, we talked about a couple weeks ago the idea of gossip and the gossip culture that exists around us and the tabloid culture of how celebrities are always in those columns. They're always being talked about and their wealth and their possessions and their success. And there's so many people that hunger for that kind of success. They want the stuff. They want the kingdom. They want to have all the rule and reign. But I'm reminded again that if we aren't careful, we as even believers can get wrapped up in all that. But rather than get wrapped up in the cultural thinking of building our own kingdoms and thinking it's all about us, maybe we should step back and say, no, I'm going to submit myself under your mighty hand. And in due time, you will lift me up, Lord. It's not about me building up myself or my kingdom. It's about submitting myself to his mighty hand. And then amazingly, by his grace and his sovereign will, he will raise us up at the due time. That means in the perfect moment that we will be blessed and he will be glorified. And it's not going to look like what we think. It's not going to look like what you think. It's not going to follow your plan the exact way you laid it out. I always joke about when Sandra and I first got married, we used to talk about our plans before that. You know, you, you go to college, you have a plan, you're going to go to college, you're going to graduate, you're going to get this job, you're going to do this, you're going to get married by this age, kids by this age, have your first house by this age. I can literally tell you, none of it has happened the way we thought it would. And many of you can relate. You have these plans. Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do with the rest of my life at 18. Oh, man. Now, do we not plan and just throw everything to the wind? No, we plan and we forecast and we look out and we pray for wisdom as we make these plans. But I'm so thankful that we can set our plans, but then we have a trust in a God who when he changes our plans, we know it's for his glory and our blessing. And so when you read this opening text, I believe it's with great intention that we're hit right in the face with the power of this human king. But then we're reminded again, as we go through the story, the greatness of our king of kings. Another thing we should note, and this morning, again, we're going to kind of give more of an overview of the whole book and some different points I want to draw out. And then over the next couple of weeks, we'll dive into the specifics of individual storylines. But another thing we should note is that this book has been the victim of what I call selective teaching in a lot of churches. And what I mean by that is this. I've been pastoring now for many years. Um, I've talked from Esther, but I've never done a series through Esther, at least not that I remember. And so for me, even, it's taken this long for me to be, oh, yeah, that's in the Bible. <laughs> we probably should talk about it. So that's what I mean when it's kind of the victim of selective teaching. It either gets overlooked or it's the book that's traditionally reserved for ladies' Bible studies and ladies' Bible studies alone. Well, you can talk about Esther as long as it's in a ladies' Bible study, but don't bring that into the church now. Come on. Us men, we don't need to get it. I mean, what, what is a guy going to get from the book of Esther? Come on. That's a ladies' book. And that's what I mean when I say in some churches and in some traditional churches, it's kind of fallen to that. Well, we can't really talk about that because, you know, that's a woman's book for women. But that's not at all what this book is. But it's fallen victim to that. And in fact, if I asked, I'm not going to, but if I asked 
the ladies in here, if you've ever done a Bible study, in a ladies' Bible study through Esther, I'm sure many ladies could raise their hand and say, yes, we have. And there's nothing wrong with that. But again, it's not reserved only for that. This is for the church because it's in the word of God. So let me just give you quickly some of the, the reasons why I want to do this series. As I was preparing this and studying through some things, some things jumped out to me that I think are some good reasons why, as a church, we're doing this study. So there's five basic reasons, and they're not really points per se, just things that I was thinking through and as I was studying that came out to me. Five different reasons why I think it's a great study to do as a church. The first thing I want to point out is it teaches us to read all of God's word. It teaches us to read all of God's word. It broadens our understanding of God. When we decide to not just select one book over here to this group and one book to that group and this book's for them and this book's for that, but we realize that all scripture, Paul says, is this not what Paul says? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's not profitable because we we deem it profitable. It's profitable because God inspired it. The mere fact that he breathed out the words of God to us through human authors The the core purpose of that was to reveal himself to us and then to let us have revelation to know how to know him. And then we grow in that by reading the word of God. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I believe that when we selectively choose certain books over others or we kind of minimize some, uh, there's some Christians that want nothing to do with the Old Testament. Well, that's Old Testament. We're in the New Covenant. We're in the New Testament church. New Testament is where we need to be. Obviously, we're not under the Old Testament law. But again, what does Paul say? All those things that were written aforetime are for your learning. It's to benefit you in your knowledge of the things of God. And so as we're reading through this book, it was given to us as historical record, yes, of what God had done, but it's also given to give us an understanding of who God is. It it helps us to grow and learn and how we can apply it to our lives today and see God in our lives today. So number one, it teaches us to read all of God's word. Another kind of reason behind this series is it teaches us to trust in God's promises. It teaches us to trust in God's promises. The truth is God is aware and God is working. And those two basic ideas, I think we need to really kind of latch on to. God is aware. Now, I'll be transparent here for a second. There's been many times in my Christian life where I really didn't know that he was aware and that he was working. There's many times I've prayed prayers that sounded a lot like the Psalms where it says, God, really, where are you? Why would you do this? Why would you not do that? Why would you allow this and not allow that? God, are you even here? Do you even care? And I didn't pray this as a unsaved person to know Christ. I prayed this as a believer. I prayed this in Bible college multiple times. I've prayed this in the the ministry as a youth pastor. I've prayed this as a senior pastor. Guys, I've prayed this thing. I've said, God, are you even aware of what's going on around me right now? Do you even care? But when we get into stories like Esther and other places in Scripture, we realize, oh, he is not only aware, he is much more than aware, and he is also working, even when we don't know it. It also encourages confidence in salvation. He alone can save and is reliable. So another reason we're diving into this book, it encourages confidence in salvation. 
Another reason would be it motivates our faithfulness to God. It motivates our faithfulness to God. It's our only response. When he saves, we respond with faithfulness. And this is, again, true of not only the followers of God in the Old Testament, but it's also true of the followers of Christ today. When we see that he alone saves, our, our response must be, Lord, I'm going to be faithful to you because you saved me. The least that I can do. And by the way, it's what he calls us to, is to be faithful to you, to just trust you more. One of the other reasons I, I, I find this book interesting is it provokes laughter at excessive pride or self-confidence. It invokes laughter at excessive pride. And we see this, and we'll see this in the life of Haman. It provokes laughter. When you read the book of Esther, there are a few points that we'll get to where it, you can't help but laugh at the way the story unfolds, the way that Haman comes in with one idea and the way the whole thing gets flipped around and you almost have to laugh at just how it all worked out. And I find that interesting because I find myself laughing at myself when I have moments like that. When I come in with a excessive pride or I think it's all about this or that plan I have and then the whole thing gets flipped around and I just kind of go, okay, God, I'm sorry. It was pretty silly of me to think it was about me in this moment. And so we're going to find that even unfolded in the book. And so what are some major points we need to take away as an overview of the book of Esther? Some major points to take away as an overview from the book of Esther. The first question we have to ask is, and maybe you've heard this talked about, or you've even asked this question, where is God in the book? Where is God in the book? Famously known, this book is one of two Old Testament books that does not contain the name of God. Now, if you've never read it or you've never studied it, that might be a surprise to you. You maybe didn't know that. But this book does not contain the name of God anywhere in the book. Now, I said it's one of two. I'm just curious. Does anyone know the second book in the Old Testament that does not contain the name of God? It's another book that we don't really talk about in church a whole lot. We kind of like, oh, no, that's for something else. We're not going to bring that up on Sunday morning. Not close. It's the Song of Solomon. Song of Songs does not contain the name of God anywhere in the book. But, so what is a question we would ask then as we get into Esther? Isn't that weird? I mean, does that strike you as weird that a book in God's Bible would not contain God's name? Like, wouldn't you think, man, it's, it's his book, it's his Bible, his name should be in here somewhere. And that's caused a lot of debate and even curiosity as to why God would allow, like, why would God allow a book to be included in his Bible that doesn't contain his name? And the theological answer, the deep answer, and all the studying that I've done on this is simply this. Because God didn't want his name in the book. People, oh, I, there's got to be some deep theological. No, he just chose not to do it. He just chose to not have his name recorded in this book. And it really can be that simple, that he just didn't want his name in there. But then another question arises. Okay, so God doesn't have his name in the book. He doesn't want his name in the book. But then the next question that we should be asking is, why would God not put his name in the book? If the answer is he just didn't want to, okay, but then what's the point of not putting his name in there? Is it omitted maybe for a lesson or a reason? Some have suggested maybe God chose to not include his name in the book because he wants to teach us something. Maybe God is teaching us that even when he seems to be absent, he is not. 
Even when everything would suggest that he is actually absent, he is not. Not only is he not absent, but he's actually working, as we've suggested already. I wanted to share this with you. It's a quote from Spurgeon's sermon on Esther. And this is recorded in 1874. And he was speaking to this very issue of the name of God being left out of the book. And so he's teaching on Esther. And again, I find it amazing how he puts this into a word picture for us. Spurgeon says this, Although the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most conspicuously in every incident which it relates. I have seen, he says, portraits bearing the names of persons for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them. But we have all seen others which required no name because they were such striking likeness that the moment you looked upon them, you knew them. In the book of Esther, as much as in any other part of the word of God, and I had almost committed myself by saying more than anywhere else, the hand of providence is manifestly to be seen. He says very simply, his point is that an artist can paint a picture and you can know the artist so well, his character and person. We do not need to be, him to identify, be identified to us to see his presence. And that's what he's saying about the book of Esther. Yes, the name of God is omitted, but because we know the author of the word so well, and we've grown to understand his character so deeply that when we read through the book because we don't see his name is not a problem because we see his hand, his character, his heart, his providence, and he's working all the way through. And so we can say, no, God, I see you on every page, even though I don't see your name. God, I see your hand at work in every moment, even though I don't see your name. And so here for me, I find it amazing that even in 1874, when Spurgeon preached famously on the book of Esther, he even confronted this fact and said, oh, there's no problem here. Because when we know the author, we'll know him well enough to see him, even when we don't see his name. Which leads to another takeaway in the overview of the story of Esther. As we see and understand, okay, his name is not there. Why would his name not be there? Maybe it's omitted for a lesson. Maybe it's for a purpose to show us when we don't see his name, we can trust that he's actually working. When we don't see his name or his hand, if you want to use that phrase, we can trust that he's still active in our lives. But leads us to another question we have to ask and dealing with the unseen providence of God. So if God is working when I don't see, how do I trust that? How do I know that in my own life? Well, the unseen providence of God will reveal to us that God will accomplish his will. And now for me, that's a great encouragement. When I wrote that down on my notes, it actually, I took a moment. I remember I paused at my desk and I just said, God, thank you that as I type these words and print them out on paper because my iPad is dumb, when I type this out, and I print these words. I pause for a second. I thought, God, thank you that that is the truest statement I could type. You will accomplish your will. Man, if you're, if you're taking notes, jot it down. Philippians 1.6. I love it. It's one of the most encouraging verses that I can give to myself to remind me of the truth of what I just said. That he who begun a good work in you will 
finish or complete that work in Christ Jesus. You are not left alone. He has started something in you in Christ and he will finish it. The Bible says he is the author and what church of our faith. He's not the author and then go, okay, go. Good luck. Hope it works out for you. He is the author and the finisher. He will see this thing to completion. And the reason that's such a great encouragement is because our world today, we don't have that sure foundation in anything else apart from our Savior. If you think it's in your finances, in your relationships, in your, in your children, in your husband, in your wife, in your career, whatever else, in your government, in your country, in your nation, in whatever you want to put it in, I promise you, there is nothing surer than the foundation of Christ because he will accomplish his will. One of the famous verses that gets quite a bit of attention in the book of Esther is found in Esther chapter 4. Go over there with me just quickly. Now again, we're jumping around a little bit, but as I said before, next week and the week's remaining, we're going to dive into the details of the story. We're just getting a snapshot, the big picture, if you will. The big picture view of this book. Esther chapter 4 and verse 14, one of the more famous verses. And as I start to read it, you may have not recognized the reference, but you'll definitely recognize the verse. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But if thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knows whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You guys heard that before? That phrase. Man, I've seen it on coffee mugs, t-shirts, bumper stickers, right? Refrigerator magnets. It's, we, we love to put phrases from verses on our stuff. We're so good at that. We don't always do a good job at taking, you know, the whole point of the verse, but we love those kind of verses. We also love the verse from Jeremiah, right? I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, right? We love that verse. We don't like the rest of the part where he's saying that to a people that are in captivity that are going to be delivered from that captivity. We don't want to go through the captivity that they went through, but we love the idea of God prospering us, which is completely not the context of that verse. So when you read this verse, it's such a time as this. And people have said this. Oh, it's such a time as this that you've been placed where you've been placed at your work. And the truth is, I believe that's accurate. I really do believe that we are exactly where God wants us to be as we live in this county, in this township, in your city, in your school, in your workplace, God has put you there for a specific purpose at a specific time. But what's the bigger picture here? What's the bigger idea of what's going on in the story? Again, many have quoted this verse to speak to the fact that God may have placed you exactly where he has you for a specific purpose, which is very true. However, I want to emphasize not only Esther's perfect placing by God to do what he desires, but also the clear understanding that if she doesn't, now we got to stop here. We know the story. If you've read it, if you haven't read it, we're going to unpack it. Esther has a moment, an opportunity to save her people. We talked about this, that there was a plot to destroy the Jews. She has an opportunity to, to save her people seemingly by just opening her mouth and just making a request. And Mordecai, her uncle, is trying to encourage her with this. And it's amazing to see the faith and the courage that we're going to dive into of this woman who said, I'll say, I'll speak up, I'll do what I need to do. But I want to point out here that, that even, 
even Mordecai understands there's something greater at work here. You have been placed exactly where you've been placed to do what God has called you to do. But I want to look at the bigger point of this verse. The point, the bigger point, I think, is that if Esther does not do what she has opportunity to do, if she chooses not to be obedient, not to say anything, Mordecai makes it very clear. Well, don't think, basically, I'm summarizing, don't think you're going to be spared. That's one part of this, right? By the way, you're a Jew. You're going to be destroyed as well, most likely. But then he makes another statement, which I think is so amazing. Mordecai makes it clear to Esther that if she remains silent, the deliverance to the Jews would have come from somewhere else. You see, God never fails to meet his people's needs. We see this in the example of Joseph in the Old Testament, that God used Joseph to provide the needs for his people. Joseph was obedient. Praise God that he was. And he went through the whole process. And now he's second in command in Egypt. And he's able to provide food and relief to the Israelites, to his people, to specifically his own family. God will do those things. He'll work in those ways as we established already. But look what Mordecai says in verse 14 again. In verse 13, he talks about, don't think you're going to escape. You're not going to get away. And then verse 14, if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. You know what Mordecai is saying? Man, Esther, if you speak up and you speak out, God could use you to deliver his people. But if you choose to be silent, if you choose to not say anything, God is going to bring deliverance from somewhere else, from someone else. And see, that's the beauty of our God. He's got a plan and a purpose. And by the way, through the line of the Jews is going to come this one named Jesus. And that's his plan and that's his will and that will be accomplished. And so if, if Esther chose to not do what God has given her opportunity to do, God would have seen his plan come to be through someone else. And that's why we can rest assured that even in our own lives, when I don't submit as I should in faithfulness, I have not stopped God from doing what God's going to do. God is going to do what God is going to do. It just so happens he invites us by faith into the relationship so we can be a part of what God is doing. And then when we say, yes, Lord, I want to be submitted to you. I'm going to follow your will. Then we can receive the blessing of not only the relationship, but also of knowing that we've pleased our Savior, that we've done what he's asked us to do. And we get to be a part of what he's doing in this world. But our refusal to be involved in God's plan does not stop God's plan. Because it's his plan. That's why I always love when Jesus called his disciples. Man, talk about a pretty ragtag group of guys that none of us in this room would have ever chose to change the whole world. You would not have picked Peter. You wouldn't have picked Simon. You wouldn't have picked James and John, the hothead tempered guys that lost their cool all the time. You wouldn't have picked these guys. But yet in the book of Acts, it says they turned the whole world upside down. But what I love about calling these men, do you ever notice that often Jesus uses a two-word phrase? You guys know it. Follow me. And I love that it would say that he would call them and he would go on his way. He would call them, follow me. And then he would keep going in what God's plan was, what his will was for his life. See, sometimes God is going to invite you into the relationship and say, come, follow me. 
in this or that specific calling in your life. And you have a choice to make. Am I going to step up and follow or am I going to sit on my hands? But don't get mistaken. God is not going to put his plan on hold and on pause until you figure out what you want to do. God is going to do what God is going to do. And he invites you to say, would you want to be a part of this? I mean, isn't that a great blessing? That the God of all creation and all that he's doing and all that he's orchestrating in the world, he invites people like us, like me, to be involved in that? He says, would you come and be a part of this? But I love that Mordecai had the wisdom and the awareness to say, but listen, Esther, if you choose not to, God is going to accomplish his will and the deliverance will come from somewhere else. I remember Jesus, remember when he was coming into Jerusalem, his final week leading to the cross? They were getting so mad, the religious leaders, because the people were worshiping and praising him. And the Pharisees say, what? You need to silence this crowd. And Jesus says, if I silence them, the rocks will cry out. See, what Jesus was saying is, listen, I will be praised. And if people don't want to do it, nature will do it. My creation will do it. If people choose to stay silent, I will receive the worship that I am due. Because I am the king of kings. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. See, in the same sense, the people were blessed by being able to worship and be involved in that moment. But if they would have stayed silent, it's not like Jesus would have went without being praised. In the same way, if we choose to be disobedient, we choose to sit on our hands, it doesn't stop the plan of God. It just merely removes us from the opportunity to be involved in the plan of God in that moment. Now, I'm not talking about praying for timing, praying for wisdom, praying for direction, waiting on the Lord, asking God for wisdom. That is not what I'm saying when I say you need to get up and go. And if you don't, you're not involved. What I'm saying is when we pray for wisdom and we pray for guidance and we say, Lord, I want to serve you. I'm just not sure what it looks like. I believe we are following him and we're involved. What I'm talking about is people who just vehemently reject and say, no, God, I'm not doing this. Man, I'm so thankful that the times that I've told God, no, I can have confidence. It didn't stop my God from doing what he needed to do and what he wanted to do. But I do look back and I realize that I missed out on some things in my life that I believe would have been great blessings if I would have just said, yes, Lord. And I think we can all attest to that in some way, shape, or form in our lives. You see, when God calls us to join in with his plan or purposes and we refuse, his plan does not stop. We merely miss the blessing and joy of being involved. So, the unseen providence of God is at work in our lives. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe he is in control? Alistair Begg said it well and with an awesome Scottish accent, which is really one of the reasons I listen to him. He's a pretty good preacher, but I love the accent more than anything else. And you all know it's true. You can judge me if you want, but you know it's true. He's, he's got an awesome accent. Okay. The ultimate test, he says, of our doctrine of providence is not when, quote, peace like a river attendeth my way. The ultimate test of our doctrine of providence, the idea or the belief that God is in control, the unseen presence of God is working even when I don't see it. The ultimate test of that belief or that teaching of providence is not when peace like a river attendeth my way. When everything is good, when all 
in my life is at rest and peace and joy and every single thing I wanted is happening and God is just moving in ways and it's just, I'm just overjoyed at everything. I mean, the kids are sleeping through the night. I'm finding all the parking spots, like all the deals I need are there. Everything's going great. My Amazon shipment came exactly when it was supposed to come. I didn't have to send an email or anything. It was just there on the porch. Everything is good. So that's not when we're tested in our really, our the truth of our belief that God is in control. As the songwriter says, and he quotes, it's when sorrows like sea billows roll. That's the test of providence. That's where we trust he is in control or we won't. See, it's not when everything's good that the test of our idea of providence is being challenged. It's when things are chaotic And sea billows roll. You know what that means? When the storm is crashing all around us, do I, in my heart and mind, I can still say, God, why? God, I don't understand. God, I wish I could understand. We can still question in reverence. But in those moments, do I still, at the core of my heart, say, God, I know I don't get this, but I trust you are in control. See, that's when the true test of our belief of providence comes into play. Sometimes in our lives, the reason we struggle with believing God is at work and God is with us is because we don't see the why behind the what. We don't see the why behind the what. We will not always see what God is doing. I heard it this way, and I love the way this is put together. Do not try to interpret the events of your life in terms of their immediate impact or their personal relevance. Let me say that again. Do not try to interpret the events of your life in terms of their immediate impact or their personal relevance. Not because there is no immediate impact or because they aren't personally relevant. But because we will inevitably go wrong when we try to interpret events as they only relate to us. People in the Old Testament and really people in Scripture Interpreted events not in terms of my, me, and mine, but as we, ours, and us. They also didn't interpret events in terms of small time frames, but rather in terms of generations. See, the idea from the book of Esther is if we can see anything, it's seeing that I cannot only interpret events that happen to me as their immediate impact on me, or personal relevance to me, I have to step back and say, God, maybe you're allowing something in my life that's going to impact and affect the whole. Maybe what you're allowing in my life, yes, it is relevant to me. It does have an immediate impact. But maybe the reason I'm not seeing the why is because I'm only seeing it as related to me. I'm not seeing it in relation to the whole. Maybe you're doing something in my life that I will never see the point of, but that other people will be blessed and encouraged by what you did in my life and how you worked through me. And I may never see it in this timeline. I may never see it in my lifetime. Maybe it's generations away that God is going to reveal what he was doing. But I love what this author said. If we step back and we don't merely look at it with this tunnel vision, We talked about this on Wednesday night. This tunnel vision idea of, okay, God, how does this affect me? I don't care about anyone else. How does it affect me? What's it going to do for me? How's it going to benefit me? Why are you letting this happen to me? 
But when you read the Old Testament, you find time and time again, the people of God didn't ask the question of just me, me, me. I mean, they did, but usually it's when they were in disobedience and unfaithful. But when they really wanted God or really wanted to understand what God was doing, they would say, God, how are you affecting all of us through this? What are you doing in your kingdom in this? What are you doing in your nation in this? And so in the book of Esther, we find the story that unfolds is one that affects Esther. It affects Mordecai. It affects even King Asuerus. It affects these main characters. But then there's this remnant of Jews in the nation, in the, in the empire of the Persian empire that maybe had no idea what was going on. They didn't know what was going on at the palace. But unbeknownst to them, because God was working in one person's life and then in two people's lives, God saved an entire remnant of his people who never really understood the big picture of what God was doing. They just merely found out they were delivered. And so sometimes in our lives, God is going to do things in our lives and allow things into our lives that we may not see the immediate impact of, but we really shouldn't be only looking at that. We should be looking at the terms of, as a whole, God, maybe you're doing something I can't even imagine. As we move through the book of Esther, we will see an amazing story unfold of God's hidden presence. And I want to invite you this morning to pray and seek him, asking yourself if you believe he is truly in control. And my invitation also would be this. If you are questioning his presence in your life right now, you're questioning whether he's really there, whether he's really working. Maybe this morning, as we have time of invitation, maybe you would come and just bend the knee and say, God, I still don't get the why. I don't understand what you're doing but I want to trust you in the midst of that. I don't see you right now, God. I don't see what you're doing. I don't see the fruit or the result just yet. And maybe I never will, but I want to trust the author of all of it. And so maybe you would come this morning and bend a knee and say, God, I want to trust you more today. I don't see what you're doing. I'm not getting the why, but I'm going to trust the who. I'm going to trust in you as my king. And maybe you're going to come this morning and maybe you want to say, Lord, thank you for being in control. Maybe you're here this morning and you've seen God orchestrate things in your life time and time again that you're like, God, this was not coincidence or chance or fate. This was your divine working in my life. And God, I want to come and just praise you for that. So whether they're in your seats or here at the altar, maybe you want to come and respond to what God is doing and thank him for being a God who will accomplish his will. He will see it happen and we get to be involved in that. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and love in our lives. Lord, as we dive through this book over the coming weeks, I pray that as only you can, that you would deepen our trust in you. Father, we want to know that you are at work, even when we don't see you. So, Father, I pray that we would know your character well enough, know your heart well, well enough, know your... Just know you well enough, Lord, that when we don't see you as the way we think we should, that we would still trust you. And Father, again, I thank you for this little book tucked away in the Old Testament that maybe some of us have never even read. Lord, I know I haven't given it the attention it probably deserves in, in my own life. And Father, I pray that I would understand at a deeper level that you are working behind the scenes, even when I don't see you. And Father, when we are up against it and the storm is raging, may we trust 
May we believe that you are at work. And so, Father, help us to not just say these words on a Sunday morning sitting in a church. Lord, it's so easy to do that here. It's so easy within the confines of these four walls to boldly proclaim that you are in control. But Lord, I know for me, if I'm being honest with you, the real evidence of that comes out in my everyday life. The real evidence of that comes out in what degree do I worry for this or that thing? And how much time have I spent trying to figure it out so it all makes sense to me? But Father, when we realize who you are and that your plan will be accomplished and that you are good, that you are for us and not against us as your children, as sons and daughters of God through Christ, that we have confidence and and a great hope that we don't need to fear, we don't need to worry. And Lord, I truly believe that the way we avoid worry and anxiety in our lives and a sense of just panic and fear of what's to come, you say is to pray and to seek you and to lay all of our anxieties, all of our fears before you. And Lord, I don't know that those two things are disconnected. I, I, believe, that, I believe that to know you well enough to pray to you shows a confidence that you are in control. See, Lord, when we pray to you and give these things over to you, we're demonstrating by faith in a belief of your providence that you really do know what's best for us, that you are really working. Now, I know, Lord, that there will be people in this world that make decisions that will not please you. They make decisions that are sinful, that go against you, that are wrong. And we, as your children, get caught up in those decisions. We get caught up in the consequence of those choices. But I pray even in that, you still know what's going on. And so you call us. You call us into trusting you more, no matter what's going on around us. And I believe we demonstrate that trust in prayer and in faithfulness and how we live. Father, for those of us here today that are struggling in some sin, struggling in some way with some kind of a weight that's around our hearts and minds, something that's pulling at us, I pray that we would surrender that to you. We would repent of that, Lord, and turn to you and receive your grace. Lord, if there's somebody here that has been disobedient and something you've called them to, I pray that you would Show your grace to them, Lord, that they would know that they can turn from that and find mercy and grace anew every morning in you. Father, for those of us that have seen you work in our lives, we know your hand. But Lord, in seasons, sometimes we get, we get pretty bad at remembering those things. I pray you would draw it to our remembrance that we would worship you and praise you for your grace, your mercy, and your providence in our lives. Father, we love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we are led in a song of invitation? Would you come? Would you want to come and praise him and thank him for being in control? Maybe you want to come and say, Lord, I don't get it, but I want to trust you more today. I I want to trust your heart when I don't see your hand. Maybe you'd come and respond. Either here at the altar, you want to come and pray, or there in your seats. Would you call out to him?